and welcome to She Thinks, a podcast where you're allowed to think for yourself. I'm your host, Beverly Hallberg, and on today's episode, we look back at the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan in 2021 and how an independent rescue mission led to evacuating 17,000 people from the Taliban's terrorist regime. It's a heavy topic, and it's an important topic. Chad Rubichaud joins us, who led this daring operation, and he's the author of the new book called Saving Aziz, How the Mission to Help One Became a Calling to Rescue Thousands from the Taliban. He'll talk with us about the resilience of the Afghanistan people, his direct interaction with the Taliban, and what we can learn from this 20-year war. Before we bring him on a little bit more about him, Chad Rubichaud is a former Force Recon Marine and DOD contractor with eight deployments to Afghanistan and is the co-founder of Save Our Allies, which evacuated more than 17,000 people from Afghanistan in 2021. And after overcoming his personal battles with PTSD and nearly becoming a veteran of suicide, uh, he founded the Mighty Oaks Foundation, a leading nonprofit serving the active duty, military veteran, and first responder communities with highly successful faith-based combat combat trauma and resiliency programs. It's a wonderful program that you should check out. Chad, thank you so much for joining us on She Thinks today. Uh, Thanks for having me on. And I would like to also say on behalf of everybody listening, we thank you also for your service. It is pretty impressive that you've had eight deployments to Afghanistan. Before we get into the situation that we found ourselves in in the summer of 2021, I know this is a big question, but can you tell me briefly about your time on these deployments and your interaction with the Afghan people? Yeah, well, and you know, my service was a little bit unique and where I really had a lot of interaction with the Afghan people. Uh, I was a force recon Marine, which is special operations in the Marine Corps. And, uh, and then I was uh, selected to be part of a JSOC joint special operations command task force and, and serve with, with one of the premier special operations units uh, in the world. And, uh, and my job specifically at that unit was called an AFO advanced force operator. And that means I went out uh, in a, with a single team capacity by myself uh, in this more like an undercover cop, maybe it's a blend in with the local nationals, live with the local nationals. And my job was to go ahead of our unit to do all the clandestine infrastructure to actually put our soldiers on target to capture or kill bad guys. And so the nature of my job working independently meant I have to be working with local nationals. And that gave me a huge exposure to culture of Afghanistan. I was assigned one interpreter and for the continuity of operations, I had that same interpreter for eight, all eight of my deployments. His name was Aziz. Uh, Aziz uh, not only was my interpreter, became my, but he became my sole teammate, was trained, vetted, information that I had access to. And, uh, and you know, he and I went through the mountains of Afghanistan and, uh, and across the border into Pakistan and, and did hundreds of missions to put our assaulters on target and, and, uh, and go after the bad guys. And, and so, what, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I was just saying, in doing that, you know, you, when you spend that much time with someone, you're either going to really not like them or you're really going to like them. And, uh, and with Aziz, you know, we, he's, he's became one of my most dear friends in my life. And he saved my life multiple times. And, uh, and you know, we when we come back from uh, operation, I didn't go back to base and he went home. I, I went to his home. Uh, his wife, Hatra, was as the first warm meal we got back from coming after those mountains and coming out of those mountains. And I was there when his oldest son, Mashud, and Mashud I were born. I held them as babies. So he's family to me. Yeah, and we're, we're talking about a year that's over 20 years. Any insight that you can give us, and, and I want to talk about your relationship with Aziz, but any insight you can give us and how the Afghan people treated the U.S. 
um, soldiers that were there, also the fact that they're the U.S. base there. Were they happy that the Taliban was pushed out? Was it mixed? How did they view this time in society for them? No, I mean, it wasn't mixed at all. Look, the, the Taliban was, was brutal before we went there in, in September 11th. At, when we, were, we went there because of September 11th uh, in the attacks on our World Trade Centers. But you know, really, uh, my heart turned to the Afghan people, learning who they were, the culture that they have there, and the oppression they were under from the Taliban. You know, women women were living under Sharia law, and uh, these crazy ideologies where you know women were not allowed to be educated. They weren't allowed to show their show themselves in public. They were not allowed really to to, to go outside their homes, and uh, and and they were the consequences was either brutal beatings or even executions. And so the women's uh, rights there, the oppression. Of, of of these people and they really the sexual molestation and the, the, uh, the deviant things that we saw with women and, and children especially little boys and little girls was just uh, a thing that was just so grotesque and uh, and something that i think the 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 afghan people were just so happy that the u.s came in and, and and was able to eradicate the taliban out so quickly and then now they had resources coming back in with communication and and electricity and and uh in in school and a right to go to school and be educated and then medical supplies and resources and access to the rest of the world uh the people were very happy and one of the stories i could share of, of that kind of put it puts an exclamation point at that it was in 2004 i was at aziz's home and we had this they had this big party for the 2004 presidential election and i remember being so like why would they care about a u.s presidential election i mean this was like super bowl party food people on the wall and they were just they were so scared that if president Kerry got elected that he was going to pull out with the u.s troops and the taliban would come back so they were glued to the television watching the results and and uh cheering when, when president bush had won the election and it really opened my eyes to how much of an impact america has in a world that we we don't even know of you know i mean before I didn't know about Afghanistan before I went there and, and, and just how much of an impact our America has in the world. And, uh, you know, the Taliban uh, being gone from, from Afghanistan just allows so much opportunity for the Afghan people over the 20 years that we were there. And when you we think about Aziz, um, who was your interpreter, and we know that there were many other interpreters, there are many Afghans who worked with the U.S. military and the U.S. government. What was the risk that they were putting on the line for that? Obviously, we know the Taliban is brutal. What was the likelihood that something bad would happen to them? And were some hesitant to work with the U.S. military and government? Of course. I mean, they, they put their lives on the risk because as soon as they work for the U.S., uh, with the U.S. military, they're identified as infidels. And uh, in, in the Taliban Taliban law, they, they're uh, there to be killed. And uh, so, and, and it's not just them, it's their, you know, it's their wives and their children would be uh, either killed or beaten or sexually enslaved. Uh, so it's a, it's a huge risk, but, you know, people like Aziz, I remember Aziz just talking about freedom and democracy. And this is a guy who never even seen freedom and democracy before, but he wanted it for his children, especially for his daughters to be able to be educated and not be forced into a marriage. And he, he wanted that and he was willing to fight for it. And, and so many Afghans uh, felt the same way. A lot of people don't know, uh, you know, and it was one of the comments that we got during the evacuation was, why are we going to fight for people that won't fight for themselves? And that's just not true. I mean, 60,000 Afghans died. 60,000 Afghan soldiers died in the last 20 years 
fighting for freedom and for for their Afghans, for the fellow Afghans, fighting for freedom for their daughters to be able to be educated in schools, fighting for freedom for them to have a you know a chance and and through having you know healthcare and, and education, and so and, and then in addition to the soldiers, hundreds of thousands of Afghans died standing up against the Taliban in that fight. So these were people that were willing to fight for freedom, and uh, you know and it wasn't them that quit on it when we left. It was it was you know I could go into that, but it was definitely us that pulled the rug out from under them. Yeah, and so I, w- I want to talk about that. Uh, we know that the announcement of the withdrawal and the withdrawal when it happened was in 2021, the summer. Just for context, President Trump, when he was president, had talked about withdrawing as well. From your perspective, being on the ground, working with people who became family, you know what promises were made to the people who ended up partnering with the U.S. government and helping our military as well. When there were first talks about the withdrawal, how did the people respond? How did you feel about it? Did you think that there was an effective way or at least a way to withdraw what keep still keeping a small force there, for example, that would still keep the Afghan people safe? Yeah, such an important question. First of all, the uh, there was a promise made to the to the our allies in terms process that was promised to them to be able to be on a path to, to immigration and, and citizenship to the United States based on their service uh, to America. And, uh, you know, this is, you know, almost 80,000 uh, Afghan interpreters were promised this, plus their family members. And uh, and and so when the president announced uh, the withdrawal, the full withdrawal, and, and again, I think it's really important you pointed out, President Trump started his negotiations with the Taliban. And then President Biden, I didn't agree with either one of those. Uh, and I think people are surprised to hear me say that because I was a surrogate on pres- the veteran surrogate on President Trump's campaign. I didn't agree with him doing that. But no one should have negotiated the release of Bagram Air Force Base to our enemies. Bagram Air Force Base is the most strategic place in the globe between Iraq, Iran, Russia, and China. And, and it is it is the it is was the center point for the last 20 years that's kept America out of a major war, kept America safe. And the entire international community was using that hub to support and advise the Afghan National Army and Afghan National Police. We were doing it with a contingent force of 2,500 to 4,000 troops. So one of the lies I believe that the American people have been told is that we were in this endless war, this 20-year war, and we have to withdraw it sometimes. And uh, and that just, you know, maybe we did it the wrong way. But the truth is, in 2018, we stopped doing that conventional kinetic war with the Taliban and that we had the Afghan National Army doing it and the entire international community was supporting them and it was working, it was effective, the world was a safer place and the Taliban was kept in those mountains of Afghanistan. And so to say that we needed to quickly move out of out our force because America's sons and daughters were dying and we have to leave, that's just not true. We had we have a, that small contingent force, we have those forces all over the world. And, uh, and when we leave historically, when we've successfully left major conflicts, we've always kept a contingent for, force in place. World War II, we still have 80,000 troops in Japan since World War II, 40,000 troops in Germany since World War II. We have 35,000 troops in, in, uh, in Korea since this, in South Korea since the Korean War. And those have worked. Those have prevented us from being in, in, in further wars to have that contingent, contingency in place. And so to say that we needed to do a full withdrawal, Forfeit Bagram Air Force Base, not by negotiating with our with our allies and in the Afghan government that we put in place for 20 years, but to negotiate with the enemy and to say that we have to move our 2,500 to 4,000 troops out is just not true. And it's not consistent with how, being, how we were so successful in the previous wars. Well, I think a lot of us think back to the images that we saw when the withdrawal happened. We think of, uh, first of all, people falling from airplanes. Um, 
just desperately trying to hold on. I remember the video of watching somebody hold or hand a baby over to a soldier on the other side of the fence. And then, of course, there's a tragic loss of life of 13 soldiers um, at the air base there. So there's a lot we think of when we we watch this, but you're somebody who knows the people intimately, you know the situation intimately. Where were you when you heard about the withdrawal? And then what did you think as you saw these events unfolding? Well, I started following it right when the pre President Biden took office because he started talking about it at, at day two in office. Uh, it was one of his, I think one of his campaign goals was to withdraw us from Afghanistan. And, uh, and, and you know, his, his, uh, I was following how he was being advised because it's always important to look at how the commander in chief's being advised. The Joint Chiefs were advising him against it. The intelligence community leaders were advising him against it. Uh, but he was making this decision anyway. And so uh, based on the things I said earlier, this was very concerning for me for our national security and for the global security because I knew, you know, the absence of the U.S. military and having that international presence in uh, at Bagram Air Force Base would, would be uh, would be a hotbed for terrorism, and it would also uh, allow our enemies, China, Iran, uh, and who definitely wanted Afghanistan for for economic reasons, and then uh, Pakistan ISI, uh, which is in Pakistan's intelligence. In addition to that, I was concerned for the Afghan people. Uh, I, did, I don't I know I knew, and I think anybody with any kind of military experience knew the Afghan National Army was not prepared, and it never would be fully prepared without the support that we gave them. Uh, through that international effort and uh, by, by providing them that, that, that support and advisory role, by bringing air support to them. This is a system that was really working to prevent terrorism. And so it really concerned me. And then I was also personally concerned for my friend Aziz and the other interpreters that had, that had served with us and knew that uh, you know, the State Department would not be able to evacuate all of our allies and they would be left behind. And, uh, and ultimately, they would, what would happen exactly what is happening. They would be systematically killed for their service to us. And so when you thought about Aziz and I, I'm assuming you look to potentially the, the government and the military on the ground to try to evacuate people, when did you realize that the people that you knew, including your interpreter Aziz, were not getting the help that they needed? Well, I tried to do it uh, through the paperwork process first of, of through the special immigrant visa process that they were promised. He had already been in the process for six years. Remember, it's only supposed to take nine months. Uh, this is a guy that had access to top secret information and polygraphed. Uh, worked with the 15 years with the highest level of special operations in the United States military. And uh, and I know a lot of people in Congress. I have a lot of people in Senate. And we still couldn't get him through. So I'm like, if it's not working for him, it's not going to work for anyone. And uh, and so I was, I was I started looking at different options where I'd be able to get him out because we knew that the military withdrawal would not was not anything with the military withdrawal did not support the evacuation of, of our allies. And in addition, we started seeing how, how the president was going to go about things. Uh, I was really concerned with the withdrawal plan or what was was the plan uh, what they had. It was uh, it was really concerning. So I knew right away that I would have to take matters into my own hands and uh, and build a team to go and get Aziz's wife and his kids. Uh, when we seem um, as we put it as we put the team together, put a team together, about 12 special operations veterans that I knew really well and have a tremendous amount of experience from the highest levels of special operations. And uh, as we're putting our team together uh, to go get them, one of our teammates made a very important point that it was maybe a little bit selfish just to get as easy as family when we had such a talented group of people with the willingness to go help. And I think all of us are pretty strong people of faith that we really felt God was like burdening our hearts to do the right thing, uh, even though our government wasn't. And uh, we made a decision to say, uh, let's get as many um, interpreters, Americans, women, children that would be uh, persecuted or sexually enslaved and 
uh, many Christians that would be uh, persecuted for their faith. Let's get as many people as we can. And, and, um, you know, and can got, I got, can I interrupt you here? Yeah, I just sure. want to make sure when you talk about going over there and pulling these people together that you had served with before, you're talking about special ops. Or, or how dangerous did you expect this to be? How did you plan to to enact it? Is this similar to what we would see on the movies where you're completely trying to go in the dark of the night, pull people out? What was your thought at that time? No, yeah, it's exactly that. I mean, we we, we knew that the Bagram Air Force Base uh, had been forfeited. We knew that the uh, we knew that the White House had made this huge error of moving out military, abandoning uh, Bagram Air Force Base, which would have been the most secure place to evacuate people with military aircraft. They had abandoned that, and they had uh, moved military out before civilians, before allies, before our $84 billion in equipment. So they had really created a scenario that created a very hostile environment. You talked about the airport, thousands of people. 100,000 people swarming the airport. Uh, you've seen how desperate people were in those planes. They were also, as, as you know, for any moms listening out there, you probably imagine like how desperate you'd have to be to kiss your little brand new baby goodbye, put it on top of a crowd of thousands of people, for that crowd to crowd surf that baby to the wall and somebody at the end of that wall to throw it as hard and high as they could to get over that wall because that was a better chance than to stay behind with the Taliban. To say goodbye to your, your brand new baby like that, that's the level of desperation. And then what they didn't know was on the other side of the wall was six feet high and 20 feet deep of Constantino wire. My buddy Joe counted six babies that were hung up in that wire, bled to death. I mean, uh, that's the level of desperation that were there. So knowing we were going into that environment, we we're going to have to go outside the wire, uh, meaning off of that, off of that controlled military uh, airport to go get people. I mean, we knew we were going into a very hostile, I mean, the level of experience that I had in that group we knew exactly what we were getting to. We had a lot of comments. People were writing stuff on social media like, you guys are stupid. You don't know what you're doing. You're getting yourself killed. Like, we knew what we were doing. Uh, but, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes uh, you, you look at the risk versus reward, and, and we, had, we had friends there. It was, it was, the, right, it, it was the right thing to do and, uh, when our government was doing the wrong thing. And it made me real proud to see, you know, people, and, and I say, you know, our group, but people coming together just to do the right thing for their fellow human. Uh, and people donating money to us, people reaching out to us and saying, "Hey, we're praying for you." Like uh, people just supporting us and, and and getting the word out. And then the you know the volunteers, uh, guys that we had go and team because everyone was volunteers. So it how many just, people did you have with you going over? How many people volunteered for this dangerous mission? We had twelve a twelve man team, but only three people would go outside the wire at a time, uh, outside the the airport at a time. Uh, and uh, you know it's. It, Aziz was actually got by a, a Air Force pararescue man, a special operations guy named Sean High. Uh, I was able to move Aziz to that gate, and we had Sean High come out of the airport and get him. We ultimately got uh, that week uh, was 10 days there. We didn't know how long we had. We just, as fast as we could, most, I mean, if you stop to sleep for five minutes, you're like, someone's going to die. Uh, so my friend Seaspray lost 37 pounds in that 10 days. Just, he never stopped getting people. And, uh, and we were getting the right people. We had people who were getting SIVs, people with documentation. And I got to back up. The way we were able to do this, by the way, all we did was be willing to go. But we seen what I would say was a miracle because um, – and really like a divine miracle because I'm not smart enough, capable enough to pull this off. But the Joint Chiefs allowed us as an NGO, as a, as a civilian operation – to go onto the airport and do these evacuations, land aircraft and do that. That's an impossibility. So that was a miraculous door open. And then the United Arab Emirates, the royal family allowed us to bring people there because you have to have either a visa or something to be able to bring people in one country, not other countries, human trafficking if you don't. 
And, uh, and so they rolled out the red carpet for us to use the humanitarian center and gave us a C-17 plane, the large military planes. And then Glenn Beck, a friend of mine who's a radio show host, many people may know who he is, he called me up and said, I just went into the radio to raise a few thousand dollars and I raised $21 million. What do I do with it? And uh, I said, we need to charter planes. And so all these things happened in like three days that made any one of those things that didn't happen would have made it impossible. But uh, these things just fell into place and we were able to stay there for that 10 days. And ultimately that week, we saved 12,000 people from that airport and moved into the humanitarian center in Abu Dhabi. But then uh, that Abbey Gate was blown up and 13 of our service members were killed. And we chose, while the military had to leave, we chose to stay. And there's a lot of reasons we chose to stay, but I think the, the one that sticks out the most is that that the news and the White House was saying that there was 100 Americans still there. And we were like, uh, yeah, it's not even debatable. Like, we were like, that doesn't even match up with the math that they were saying. That was Their own math didn't match up. But the, but we knew there were thousands of Americans still there. Uh, and, and and it didn't matter to us, however, if there was if we were right and there was thousands or the White House was right and there was 100. You don't leave an American behind in a situation like that. That's a promise that the, that the United States government has to the American people. If you're in a dangerous situation like this, if you're in a combat environment, we will not leave you behind. And the president even made that promise, we will not leave you behind. And the, and the White House chose to leave Americans behind. And, uh, and you know, where I come from, like one American somewhere, we're like, we'll scorch the earth around you to go get you. And be, even if we lose guys, like that's just the, the mentality that you always had in a special operations community. And, and uh, it was just unconscionable for us to leave. So we chose to stay. And uh, we stayed for another two months and worked out of a place called Maza Sharif. And it was able to fly another 5,000 people out. And I say we loosely. We had a coalition of like a lot of incredible nonprofits that were helping organize and move people and move people in safe houses and get people out. And then after that, we chose to stay even further and uh, and help move people who were stuck in the Panjir Valley into Tajikistan. Uh, there, was, there was thousands of people stuck in this Panjir Valley and they wanted to go into Tajikistan to get out. But that border is like the terrains, like 25,000 foot mountain peaks and category five rapids river across the Panjit river, which makes the border there and the water. If you get in the water, it's like ice melt. So it's freezing cold. And, uh, you, so you could travel through there for a week and with a family and then you hit a thousand foot cliff or rapids in the water. Or, and, uh, and then the Chinese military was securing that border and the Russian military was there securing the border. The Tajik military guard, a border guard was there. And then the Taliban, of course, was like every you know few hundred yards on that border. So, uh, we made a decision to go to take myself and one other teammate to go into Tajikistan. And we traveled 12 hours through those mountains, got to the border and spent 10, 10 days on that border. We did about 90 miles of border reconnaissance and in a night we would swim across that river into Afghanistan. And, uh, and we built six routes out and provided that information to some of our government agencies that wanted information, NGOs that were evacuating people and some of the commandos that were helping move civilians across. And so we were able to provide that you know, vital information to help evacuate more people. So you're talking about how you had to swim across freezing cold water. You had to set up uh, this this area to try to bring people back. Obviously very dangerous. When you first started this in those first 10 days that you talked about, are you taking helicopters to different portions of the country? Are you also walking into the city that you were in near the air base? And are interpreters going with you each time? But how, how did you coordinate that? Yeah, so the, um, the, at the airport, our ground team was a guy named Sea Spray, Sean G and Tim Kennedy, uh, they were 
so we would they would sneak out of uh, different parts of the, of the or go through a gate or sometimes sneak out of the parts of the airport and they would may, maybe go as far as like two or three miles outside the airport in the in the city of Kabul and we and uh, I would be linking up like working coordinating communicating with these groups to link them up and we'd use near and far recognition symbols and uh, I don't I can't get into the details of how uh, our our, our means and methods of how we do that but uh we use like a seven point bona fides system to make sure they're the right people and then we to get it get control those people then we move them so everything was done on foot uh at the airport and then uh and then you know sneaking them back in through what we call rat lines like holes in the fence and different routes that we built out and and tajikistan everything in there was on foot as well we had vehicles we had a vehicle that we did the uh, route recon for the 90 miles of border but when we would uh we go into we would go into Afghanistan at night. We would go in the night. Uh, sometimes the Taliban or Chinese special operations right there in the border. We'd be like within thirty, you know, thirty fifty yards from from uh, the Taliban or Chinese uh, Chinese soldiers and uh, and swimming across that river in Afghanistan. Uh, so but all this was done on foot. Uh, flying helicopters around was not was not an option. Uh, was not an option for us. Uh, we we had looked at using helicopters to move people on the uh, HKI airport, but uh, that option ended up not, not uh, fizzling out. So pretty much all the movements were done on foot. And once we got them to aircraft and we were able to load them on aircraft, get them manifested, make sure we were getting the right people because we were we were confined with getting the right people, uh, not, uh, you know, we couldn't just put anybody. On do, you have, do you have any idea how many miles you walked during that time frame? Uh, I, I don't, we were, myself and Dennis started us 10 days 10 days we were on that on that border i mean we we slept probably like an, an hour two hours a day for 10 days and, and uh and literally we uh, i would say we were we walked probably 12 hours a day uh for 10 days um and so we were constantly walk constantly yeah. walking and, and building routes and uh, yeah it's very treacherous terrain too that mountains there yeah uh, just, yeah so we I have no idea how much we walked. Uh, we were t- uh, usually I have a I would have had a GPS tracker on, but we had to shut a lot of electronics off because the Russian uh, military was there and any electronics you put on, they were uh, they were intercepting, and so we were trying to be make sure our locations wasn't you know so we just shut off our electronics. And one of the things that is interesting, you were talking as we started the conversation just uh, during the war and your deployments there, you would go into the mountains. I'm assuming you're interacting with the Taliban to a certain extent. Um, yeah. Maybe that's not the case. Did you did you interact yeah. with the Taliban during these rescue missions at all? Were they at all willing to let you take people out or, or what was that like? No, and during my previous operations, when I was you know in, in the active military doing these operations, was, there was there was oftentimes that interaction with the Taliban, uh, and uh, you know particularly you know in, in my status I had to interact with the Taliban, um, but in, in this scenario, um, no, we did not at all. Um, the Taliban would have not have been been our friends. I think at the airport, I, I think at the airport, uh, the Taliban probably I, I would assume had orders not to mess with any American military looking personnel because they just wanted us to leave, and the president made this huge mistake to give them a date. So they just had to buy out time, and uh, you know we should have not given a date. We should have given terms. Again, yeah. I don't, I don't agree with the withdrawal at all. But if you were going to withdraw, you don't give a date. You say, when we leave, when we get all of our Americans out, when we get all of our interpreters out, when we get all of our eighty-four billion dollars in equipment out, when we get all that done, then and only, and only then. Am I still on? Yeah. Then and only then will we leave. And so we chose. Uh, so uh, 
but we chose to give them a date. And because of that, they just bought time and, uh, and, and waited us out. And uh, I think they intentionally did not interfere. Chad, yeah, your audio's out just a little bit. I'm going to, I think it hopefully will cut back in. But a question for you, I was just thinking about this as we're transitioning to going from the rescue where you saved all these people, which is, I would say, providential and amazing um, on so many different levels. One can't say enough on that. I want to talk about the Taliban itself now that they've obviously taken over Afghanistan. They've been there for over a year. What do you think people should know about them? I, in my perspective, which is very limited, I think that there is a, a misunderstanding of the Taliban. People think of them as a rogue terrorist group. Um, talk about how sophisticated they are and what we should think about them today. Have, them, have they been able to grow in power since they've taken over Afghanistan? I'm assuming that answer is yes. Yeah, I mean, the Taliban is, is a, I mean, you know, They've, they've grown in, in, in power and capability, uh, mainly because uh, of, of foreign governments and intelligence agencies, primarily Pakistan ISI, and, uh, which is their Pakistan ISI. It's like their, their CIA. I mean, they're supposed to be an ally of ours. Uh, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll say, and it's probably not popular for me to say among some of my colleagues, uh, Pakistan ISI and Pakistan as a country is not an ally of the United States. They, they harbored and trained the Taliban for the last 20 years. And uh, the, the Pakistan... Uh, the the Taliban that you see and come back across the border and and, and, and occupy Afghanistan is ISI trained uh, uh, Taliban. Uh, they know how to use. Oh, okay. Thank you. Cut out just a second there. Yeah. Let, let me transition to this. Uh, I mean, it's heroic what you and your fellow Marines did. Did you ever hear from the Biden administration or from the U.S. government thanking you anything along, along those lines? Because many people, as you even said this, viewed this as the U.S. military, not just leading, leaving our allies behind, but leaving our own people behind. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, um, probably our actions were not very popular with the administration. Uh, it would have been probably embarrassing for them to see that we've, you know, rescued uh, all these people that they left behind, uh, including Americans. And, uh, you know, and, 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 uh, I didn't write a book as a hit piece against you know, my, my book, Saving a, Saving a Z, is not a hit piece against President Biden, but it does lay out the truth. And the truth is, uh, you know, it's not very favorable to the White House. And, uh, you know, the Pentagon had my book for five months and did the redactions, which means anybody who reads that book know that whatever's still left there is true. And, uh, and, and uh, unfortunately, those truths uh, are, are not something that is American government can be very proud of. I, 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 I had a struggle with that for a little bit, but I, I do believe that while the government uh, didn't do the right thing, American people did and stood up and did the right thing. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'm proud to have been part of that and, and proud of our teammates and everybody supported us to be part of that. But, yeah, I don't think the government is very happy with us, uh, especially the State Department, for having to deal with the aftermath of how many people we did get out and, and bringing that to the surface. But, you know, so be it. We, we're the American people and our voice should matter more than, than the our elite leaders anyways. Uh, and, uh, and I hope, I hope this book brings uh, truth to some people so they could actually talk about, you know, talk about the things that they're, that they don't agree with and then voice it to their congressmen and senates. And I mean, look, uh, uh, the new house, uh, uh, speaker of the house just announced that there's gonna be investigations into the withdrawal, which is important. Uh, I don't think accountability will ever be, be, uh, come for it. I'm not optimistic enough to believe that, but I do believe these questions should be asked publicly. 
of why you know the White House and the administration made these decisions, why did the State Department turn their back on our on our allies and our American citizens, and, uh, and and I hope we get some answers. What would you say, just kind of as we're closing the conversation now? What would you say about this twenty-year war? What we learned? How do you view the work that you did, considering so many people view this withdrawal as just a complete disaster? How do you place it in your own mind, considering you lost people that you served with and you know how much was at stake? Well, I mean, it's not over. There's, uh, for me, it's, I view it as something that's not over. There's still 75,000 allies in Afghanistan. There's, uh, and their family members that, so it's un- unresolved. There's still, uh, there's still 20, 40 million people in Afghanistan, but there's 20 million uh, women and little girls that are going to be sexually enslaved. Uh, there's there's 20 million women that have just been told last week that not only are they forced into Sharia law and wearing burqas, and now they're already already marrying. In, in, in August, they were doing this 2021. They're already marrying off nine-year-old and 11-year-old girls, but they have also been told that they can't have health care. They said that these women can't, any women in Afghanistan now cannot see a male doctor but women can't be doctors, nor can women be educated. So women's health care is gone in Afghanistan. No education, no health care, forced marriages, uh, Sharia law. And, you know, for me, uh, I think women uh, uh, that have stood up for women's rights should be speaking into this. This is this is, uh, uh, 20 million women that we were connected with as a nation for 20 years. And, uh, and we should be speaking up for them, uh, you know. I'm a, I'm a guy, I have a voice, but I, I think women should be speaking up because right. this is a tro- it's atrocious that women would be treated this way anywhere in the world. But, but uh, it's, I mean, this is 2023. This should not be allowed anywhere in the world. The world needs to speak up uh, oh. for, these, for these women. And one of the things I, I think is interesting is taking a look at what's been going on with the protests in Iran, also the protests in China. So yeah. many women are leading those protests. And so you do see a rise of women speaking up for women's rights. I know the women in Afghanistan are facing um, drastic measures if they speak up. So I realize their situation is very dire, but it's important for all of us to speak up yeah. who can I, on their behalf. I, I have seen that. I would just, I would just challenge, uh, you know, we, we live in the most amazing country in the world. And regardless of how, how terrible the politics are and how divided it, is, it <laughs> seems, this is still the greatest country in the planet. And, and this gives us an opportunity by being American citizens. We have the freedom and opportunity to use our voices and speak up for those who can't. And uh, and those women in Afghanistan can't speak up right now, but we can't for them. And uh, and. and uh And your audio cut out again. Yeah. So yeah, go ahead. Now I can hear you. I would say I, I personally <laughs> like to see more American women speaking up yeah. for the yeah. for women in Afghanistan and around the world. So. Final question for you. And if you don't want to give anything away because you do have a book that came out on the 17th, Monday of this week, where is Aziz today? And do you have any um, stories to share on some of the people that were rescued? Yeah, well, Aziz is here with me in New York on a... Oh, let's wait just a second. And now, now I got you. Okay. okay. Someone keeps trying to call in on the, and I don't know who it is. Oh, <laughs> you're a popular uh, guy. Your book's out this week. Well, it's on, they call it on Skype and my Skype's only for interviews. <laughs> so got it. Um, but um, yeah, Aziz is here with me in New York. We're on the, the book tour for the release. It was really neat to see him in Times Square, his big face on a billboard. We have, we have a Times Square billboard. The Harper Collins got a Times Square billboard for us. And so this giant billboard with his name on it is, is so cool. And, and uh, he's just really embracing America. I mean, he's been friends with Americans for the last 20 years. 
but his wife Hatra and their six kids are just loving. They live in Texas, right next to me. They works works for my foundation, at Mighty Oaks Foundation, and uh, and he's out uh, starting to do public speaking and talking about his story and and uh, and uh, really uh, as an advocate for other Afghans. And it's just it's really amazing to see him. And uh, and then you know many Afghans are, are coming here and they're getting assimilated into American culture. And uh, one of the things I've seen and I've loved. So many people have been just really open armed and welcomed, welcoming to the Afghans that have come here and really uh, helping them make this place their home. I mean, you have to really. We were doing evacuations. We're like, pack whatever you could fit for your family, put it in a backpack because that's all you could take. Yeah. And uh, and then and they're leaving their homes and stuck in a humanitarian center for, for months at a time and then finally get here and have to start over with nothing. And and the United States government did not have a very uh, good system in place for for uh, Im- uh, immigrating Afghans here. There was very limited uh, financial uh, financial specifically for Afghans and uh, very limit limited tra- uh, transition for them. So it's been tough on a lot of them, but the people of America have, in, in this area too have really stepped up and with open welcoming arms to our Afghan friends. Well, it's an amazing story. As I said, the book is out this week. It's called Saving Aziz, How the Mission to Help One Became a Calling to Rescue Thousands from the Taliban. It is an important story. It's a story about heroes. You are a hero, Chad. We appreciate not just you coming on the show, but obviously your service to this country, and especially in this way that you weren't even asked to serve. And so it's it's really an honor to have you on the program. Chad Rubishow, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me on. And thank you all for joining us today. Before you go, Independent Women's Forum does want you to know that we rely on the generosity of supporters like you. An investment in IWF fuels our efforts to enhance freedom, opportunity, and well-being for all Americans. So please consider making a small donation to IWF by visiting iwf.org backslash donate. That's iwf.org backslash donate. Last, if you enjoyed this episode of She Thinks, do leave us a rating or a review. It does help. And we'd love it if you shared this episode so your friends can know where they can find more She thinks. From all of us here at IWF, thanks for watching.